Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is uh, continuing on in 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's a series. If you haven't been with us before, we are uh, going through uh, this summer uh, the letter of Paul to the uh, Corinthians, uh, the first one. And just to give you a little bit of the context of that, um, Paul was uh, what in modern days would be called a church planter, somebody who uh, went to territories where there wasn't any churches, and he would uh, first evangelize, he would talk to people about the gospel, there would be typically a group of people that become Christians, they would start a church, he would stay there for a couple of years, raise up leaders, uh, and then move on. Uh, and when he first started doing that, he met a lot of really severe opposition, and the whole church uh, had a lot of opposition. Uh, but of course, the people who came to those churches at first were people who really responded to what Paul had to say and had uh, great respect uh, and trust for him. Uh, what happened as time went on, and these letters of Paul are written sort of later in his ministry, is that um, there was something very common in the uh, Roman Empire, which uh, preceded the church, which uh, one could call traveling orators. So um, something that we don't really have a lot of familiarity, maybe, although maybe like podcasts would be making a modern equivalent. Um, there were people who would travel around the Roman Empire and they would be great orators and they would give soaring rhetoric, use very flowery language and really impress people with their speaking ability. Uh, and oftentimes they would charge admission. Uh, so it's almost like a show that you would go to to hear like a great speaker. Uh, and those of us who were uh, reading the Confessions of St. Augustine um, last year, uh, remember how he talked about he was employed uh, doing this uh, from time to time. It was sort of a thing that you could do. Uh, and so at a certain point in time, the Christian church actually became popular enough that some people said, hey, I could make money by being a traveling orator uh, and go to different churches uh, and uh, you know, make money charging a mission for really great preaching. Uh, and so that's the context uh, that uh, Paul is writing this letter in. And so we kind of are picking up here in your bulletin on page five, I have a, a passage of scripture. It is coming in the context of Paul um, responding to letters that they've sent him and there's been conflict in the church, there's been people who say, well, I like this preacher, or I like that preacher, and so on. And so he's rebuking them, uh, he's not condemning them, but you can, if you, as we read through this, you'll see there's an undertone of rebuke uh, in what he says. And uh, so let's pick it up here. This is uh, on page five, and our pattern is uh, at the end of the reading, I will say this is the word of the Lord, and our response is thanks be to God. So hear the word of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. I have applied all these things, that is all the things he was talking about previously, uh, to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already, you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. 
You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I am not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord. So if we pick this up, uh, especially focusing in, uh, starting in, in verse 8 there, uh, going down uh, through verse 13, you could call that in one sense Paul's extended brag. Right? Paul is talking about his ministry, he's comparing it to them, and yet it's, a, it's kind of a weird brag if you think about it. He's not saying, you know, look how gifted I am, look how talented I am, uh, look at all that I've accomplished. Everything that he's so-called bragging about is all the things that make him weak and, and sort of shameful in the culture of that day. Uh, so he's not talking about, look, you know, my wonderful accomplishments. He's saying things like, we are weak. Uh, we are fools for Christ's sake. Uh, I think we have somebody here that used to be part of a group called the Fools for Christ, which to me is one of the best names of an evangelistic group ever. Um, he says, we are in uh, disrepute. Uh, we are poorly dressed. That would have been something that people would have noticed uh, in those days. Uh, of course, nobody knows his clothes these days, I guess. Um, but uh, he says, you know, Paul would have had no good reputation because he wasn't well-dressed. Uh, he worked with his own hands. He didn't charge admission. Instead, he raised his own money uh, by working, making tents. Uh, that would have been something that people would have thought of as being sort of low class uh, on his part. Uh, he talks about being persecuted. Uh, he talks about um, being even the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Uh, you know, sometimes people today will think about honoring the martyrs because they were persecuted, and we sort of think of being persecuted as an honorable thing. But in his day, it wasn't. You know, the people who were hung on crosses, who were persecuted, that was a shameful thing. People were hung on crosses to display them as shameful. Uh, and so people didn't associate that uh, with something uh, really honorable. And so Paul is inverting kind of the way that people think uh, about uh, what they should respect. And if I was to summarize this whole middle passage here, uh, I would summarize it by saying the ways of God are not the ways of the world. And you probably didn't miss as we were reading through that, you know, Paul ends it by saying, I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed. Well, sort of he kind of is, right? <laughs> he's, he's kind of, there's a little bit of, a, of an ironic subtext of like, oh, you guys have it made, you know, we're the ones who don't get any respect. Um, he is really inverting and saying, the things that you think of as honorable are not valued by God. Uh, and the things that you think of as shameful, uh, God has actually used in our case, uh, and, uh, and God is actually holding us up. 
Uh, just as an aside, sort of a little technical thing, he talks about the apostles being exhibited last of all, like men sentenced to death. That was actually an image in Rome when you had a victory parade of the army returning to a city after winning a battle. All the sort of victorious troops would come first, and often at the end, the captured soldiers who were going to be executed would be dragged along at the end to sort of be held up as mockery or to be held up as uh, shameful, sort of the, the winnings uh, of the victorious army. And he's saying, uh, we've come along last in the whole uh, reign of the prophets, you know, the apostles being the last ones uh, to be contributing to God's word in the Bible, and yet they are in some sense the most shamed. They're the most uh, put aside. Um, so what's our application for this today? I'm going to actually in the uh, tonight, I'm going to talk about three things I'm going to make application after each point instead of keeping all my applications for the end. So I'm going to just make application of this one right now. Uh, and it's basically what Paul is getting at here, uh, including all the chapters we read earlier that we don't have in front of us, is that the church must not follow the ways of the world. Uh, and the application is we often do. <laughs> Right? We often do. Now, um, I'll just give you a little bit, and I, I'm going to really uh, change things around to not name names. So if you're thinking that you know who I'm talking about, you don't, uh, because I'm mixing things up and so on. But I have been a Christian since the 1980s, uh, involved in church leadership since the late 1990s, and I've been in a number of uh, either committee meetings or conversations about church planting, about evangelism, about starting some kind of new organization. And I've heard comments along the lines of the following, like we need uh, a man who can fill a room. You know, we need somebody who is gonna be a power figure who's gonna come in here uh, and revolutionize this church, organization, whatever, you know, fill in the blank. Uh, we need somebody who people will notice when they walk in. Uh, somebody who will fill the seats because people are hanging on their word and so on. In some sense, you could say a lot of the evangelical church uh, is looking for uh, a larger-than-life personality, looking for, uh, in a sense, you could say a king. And um, that takes us back to, you know, when the Israelites asked for a king. Uh, some of you may know the story way back uh, a thousand years before Christ. They're saying, we want to be like the nations around us. Uh, and they all have kings, and these kings are very impressive, uh, and they get stuff done. Uh, and so we want somebody who's going to get stuff done for us and have that power personality, and uh, we're going to just be, you know, kind of dominant just like those people. Uh, and God answers them, and essentially, I'm, they're paraphrasing a lot here. He says, you want a king with earthly power? Okay, you get a king with earthly power. Listen, you're going to get it. Uh, all the things that are com come from that. Now, on the one hand, it's true that there are certain uh, types of people who can get a lot done, uh, but there's also a lot of uh, downside to that too. Um, and as we look, and it's, it's been something been talked about now for five or ten years, people talk about deconstructing Christianity, the uh, scandals of evangelical Christianity, and so on, and we hear these things on a regular basis. Um, one of the common threads, not the only thing that's going on, but one of the common threads that I uh, hear in these stories is typically a structure in which you've got a power figure, almost always a man, not always, um, who is uh, sort of in that 
power king role. Uh, and they do, at first at least, uh, amazing things. The church doubles, triples, quadruples, uh, becomes a major uh, thing. Uh, and uh, then, after some period of time, there start to be stories that come out, uh, stories of abuse, of bullying, of secret sins. And in general, the thread is this person is so powerful uh, that nobody feels comfortable confronting them. There's no checks and balances in their life uh, to confront them and to say, uh, you're going astray, you're going wrong here. Uh, and so you end up with a benevolent dictatorship turning into a non-benevolent uh, dictatorship uh, in a lot of these type of structures. Um, now, some people are proclaiming it to be the end of evangelicalism. Uh, I wouldn't actually say that's necessarily happening, but I do think it's the end of another model, uh, which we, it may be the end at least, of what might be called the tent meeting model of Christianity. Um, uh, since the late 1700s, really, uh, well underway in the early 1800s, uh, in North America primarily, but other parts of the world as well, there's been a paradigm of the way you want to grow the church is you get a lot of people, like 1,000, 2,000 people together, literally in a tent is the way it started, uh, and you have somebody who really harangues the masses, and they pound the pulpit, and they use floor, uh, you know, uh, flowery language, soaring narrative, and everybody is just energized, uh, and that is what sometimes we now call a revival, right? And everybody is kind of swept along. And that has been a paradigm for uh, successful uh, ministry in the United States for more than 200 years. Uh, now you think about it, uh, does that remind you a little bit of the people Paul was, <laughs> I was just talking about that Paul was engaged in? Somebody who's going to, uh, by their soaring rhetoric, uh, really whip everybody up. And Paul is basically saying, I know you think I, I'm not that. Uh, he's not known for his soaring rhetoric. He's not known for pulpit pounding and so on. He was known for somebody who simply uh, spoke the truth uh, and persuaded people. Um, after outdoor tent meetings kind of fell away, uh, in the evangelical church, a lot of it moved toward uh, mass megachurches, uh, really with the same paradigm of we'll all feel a whole lot better if we have a massive crowd, uh, and that will feel like energetic, we'll have a person who's the focus of attention that'll get us whipped up, uh, and so on. Uh, and you end up with somebody uh, who is, in some sense, a king uh, like the ways of the world. Uh, and this is what Paul is warning us against. Uh, he's saying um, the leader you want that God has appointed is considered to be a fool, is considered to be weak, is considered to be poorly dressed, is considered to be, uh, you know, someone who just uh, does his own day labor, uh, someone who is slandered um, and actually isn't necessarily the famous person who draws everybody in. Um, so we really have to think, um, you know, mentally, how do we think about the church? Uh, do, you, do you come to worship, for instance, on Sunday morning and think um, everything else is just introduction and conclusion? It's really about uh, how great the preaching is. Um, and it's interesting because I've actually talked to people over the years who've come to our church, who've grown up, and some of you may have been in this kind of tradition of really soaring preaching, and I've talked to people who are like, what was that? That wasn't a sermon. Like, I don't even know what that was because it wasn't emotional. It wasn't 
you know, driving uh, uh, the rafters and so on, uh, and people literally being like, I like a lot about your church, but I don't feel like we even had a sermon. I don't know what that was. Um, that's deliberate on our part, uh, that it should be the word of God that speaks, uh, not the, the frills and the power of the preacher himself. Uh, and so we have to think about what we come with our expectations. Uh, and essentially, as Paul says here, um, that we should uh, really not look for a king who is going to save our church. We look to King Jesus, who is uh, the head of the church. So let me move on to uh, the second part of this, going down to verse 14 then. What is, if Paul is not bringing in people by soaring rhetoric and so on, what is he doing? What is his model of ministry? Uh, and uh, I think the key phrase for this is in verse 16. Uh, he says, be imitators of me. Uh, he's saying, follow after me. It's very similar to what Jesus said when he said to people, follow me. And the relationship he's talking about is like being a father with children. He says, you do not have many, you have many guides, these great preachers, but you do not have many fathers, and I became your father in Christ Jesus. Uh, and what he's talking about in modern terms, we would call discipleship, the idea of life-on-life -life ministry. Um, and for me, I was very influenced by a book that we used to have on the book uh, table for sale, I'm not sure if it's still there, uh, called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Uh, and I have a quote of his in the front of the bulletin. Uh, very revolutionary approach, and I really uh, recommend that book strongly. Uh, he really, he does an analysis of how Jesus did his ministry. And if you actually looked at, at the Gospels, we may be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but the fact is that that was just like one, one public sermon. Like mostly what you see is Jesus talking with people one-on-one. -on -one. And mostly he's talking with the disciples one-on-one. -on -one. He's not talking to the masses. Uh, he's talking to about 12 people, uh, 12 men or his disciples, and probably uh, another handful of men and women, maybe 20 or 30 more, that he spent almost all of his time in. And uh, Robert Coleman makes the argument that was highly intentional. He did not come to uh, give speeches to the masses, although he wasn't opposed to that. Uh, but he came primarily to spend time discipling uh, these uh, people who were very close to him. And this is what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, be imitators. Well, how can they be imitators of him if they don't know him? Right? There's a presumed relationship that he has with them, that he spends time with them, they spend time with him, uh, and they know each other. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes people will say Christianity is caught, not taught. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before. Um, now, I would not totally agree with that because I think there's a teaching part. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> uh, but if it's merely taught and not caught, uh, then it's often going to be very shallow. Uh, and it's caught the same way diseases are caught, by someone being near to you, <laughs> right, who has that. Uh, and if you are around somebody who is a Christian and you see how they live their life, you can catch it, so to speak. Uh, it can be catchy and you start to see what it's really all about. Uh, and so Christianity is demonstrated by life-on-life -life interactions with other people. Uh, now, in our church, the application for this, um, one application is uh, we have a formal way of connecting people. Uh, one reason for doing that is because in a church with a lot of people who are new and coming and moving away and so on, not everybody knows somebody who would be a good fit for them to get together with and talk to one-on-one. -on -one. And so we have a formal way, both for men and women, of 
matching you up with somebody who would be a good discipleship partner, uh, and you can meet together and so on. Uh, and so I highly recommend that to you. Uh, on the other hand, um, it doesn't have to be through that formal program, but it should be the case that there is somebody in your life that you think of as a father figure or a mother figure in your life who you talk to. Uh, and conversely, if you've been a Christian for a few years, uh, it makes sense that there would be somebody that you can father or mother uh, in a way as well. Uh, and this is basically the norm of Christianity. Uh, this is the way uh, that Jesus operated. This is the way the Apostle Paul works as he talks about uh, having people imitate him. You think about how does a child learn to be an adult? Mostly by imitation, right? Mostly by seeing how somebody else is doing stuff uh, and doing it and kind of picking up along the way uh, the rationale for that. Uh, so I'll just finish this section with um, sort of a little number thing. Um, this is not original to me at all, but um, I heard this years ago as a calculation. Suppose you had a church that was a ministry for 100 years, uh, and every year for 100 years they saw 1,000 people make profession of faith uh, and be baptized uh, and come to Christ. You'd say that was a pretty, that was a pretty successful ministry. You know, um, you know, we'd say well, that was, that's really good. And suppose that not one of these uh, thousand uh, ever was discipled. They simply came to church and they heard the word, they had true belief, but that was it. That was the end of the story. So at the end of 100 years of this ministry, you have 100,000 uh, believers, uh, and that's, you'd say that's pretty good. Okay, now there's a second church uh, in this imaginary example, uh, and in a five-year period, only one person uh, is really brought to Christ in a new way, uh, has their heart changed, and for five years, uh, that person is, has their life poured into by other people, and that person's life is radically changed, and so that at the end of five years, they're ready to do it with somebody else, okay? So then in the next five years, there's, there's now uh, that person, and one more person uh, is, the same thing happens. Now you got two, right? And after five years, now you got two people who are ready to pour their lives into other people. Uh, and you do this every five years for 100 years. You've done it 20 times, so you've doubled 20 times. So you know the answer, right? Like there's gonna be more than a million people who had their lives changed by the second church. Uh, and so the first church that had 100,000 people converted, uh, sounds pretty good. The one church that poured their lives into one person every five years uh, was able to double because of, of the maturity and the discipleship that was going on uh, and actually ends up impacting uh, the kingdom far more. Now, both of those are obviously very artificial examples, uh, but it really it goes to show you that... Um, we think in worldly terms of what we need to do is pack the pews, right? We need to get lots of people in, but if their lives and hearts are not changed, then they go away no different from the way they were before. But if people's lives are changed and they imitate and they see and they're changed as disciples, uh, that truly does uh, build the kingdom. So my final uh, point then I'm gonna talk about is then uh, under the uh, title of power. Uh, so if you go to the end of this uh, here, he's talking about the sort of common confrontation where he's going to confront these other leaders who have uh, sort of taken over in that church plant. 
And he says, some of them are arrogant, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, uh, but their power, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, uh, but in power. Now, I don't know, maybe this is just me, uh, maybe it's you too, but like, when I read that, like my first impression is it something like a Star Wars Jedi battle, you know, where it's like he's going to be like with the electric things coming out of his fingers, and they're going to have their electric things, and they're going to be like battling. So am I the only one who has that mental image? I'm, I'm not getting a lot of nodding. <laughs> um, so, you know, he's talking about a power battle here. Uh, and so you think, well, okay, the Apostle Paul, he did miracles, so maybe that's what he's talking about. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about. To prepare for this, uh, I went uh, through and looked up a lot of verses where Paul uses the word power, and you can see a bunch of them listed in your additional scriptures there. And actually, I don't think any of them, maybe there's uh, some, but uh, I don't think any of these refer to miracles, uh, certainly not electric bolts coming out of his fingers. Um, every time he uses that word power, uh, it relates to stuff I was talking about last week, about the confidence of being filled with the Spirit, uh, to have the authority to speak uh, without fear, uh, and to be secure uh, in the Lord. And so he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit bringing hope, uh, bringing confidence, and so on. By contrast, if you look at your additional scriptures there um, on page 6, uh, I have a quote from Jesus from uh, John chapter 10. And he contrasts the good shepherd and the uh, hired hand, or the false shepherd. Uh, and essentially, the good shepherd stays with the sheep, and the false shepherd, uh, false shepherd when he sees the wolf coming, uh, runs the other way. They're not his sheep. He doesn't care about what happens to him. And so if he feels threatened, he's going to run away. I think that's a little bit of the kind of thing that Paul has in mind, that He's going to come speaking with the authority of the apostle. He's not going to be like blasting them with, you know, miraculous power. But he's saying, are they going to stick around and go through uh, the fight to protect these people, or are they going to run away at the first sign of conflict? Uh, and I think he's guessing that, you know, when the going gets tough and the apostle is there and the apostle is saying, thus saith the Lord, they're going to say, well, it's a lot harder to raise money here. We'll, we'll head, for the, head for the hills like the hired hand. Uh, when the wolf comes, uh, that they will take off, and they won't be there because they don't have the heart of a father for these people. They're there actually to get money by preaching uh, or to, to uh, use the church uh, in some other way. And Paul is saying, I am your father. I'm here to protect you. These people are going to run uh, when I come because they don't have the commitment uh, to the church uh, that I do. And so, um, not every one of us is an apostle, of course, uh, but I would say that um, we should, as I talked about last week, and actually Matt talked about this morning, Jesus said, uh, I am with you always to the ends of the earth, that there is a, an image in the New Testament of God giving power to his people, not worldly power, not the power to be domineering, not the power to uh, win at everything, uh, but the power of confidence to say, I know God is there, I know he's with me, and so I'm not afraid of you, uh, and I am going to do what is right even when the going gets tough. Uh, and so I think that as we see that demonstrated in people uh, through this kind of discipleship pattern, um, it is revolutionary. Uh, it is something that God uses uh, to really change hearts uh, and to change his church. 
Uh, and so we kind of, this is in the middle of a letter. We'll see where Paul goes with this uh, in coming weeks. Uh, but in general, the whole pattern laid down by the apostles is not one of, as an apostle, let me dominate with power, but rather in quiet confidence, uh, convince you that Jesus really did rise from the dead, and this is really true uh, of what we're saying about the gospel. Let me close this in prayer.